Go ahead and find Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2. One of the many uh, values of studying the Bible uh, are the people we get to meet there. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we meet Jesus and the apostles. In Acts, we meet uh, those apostles or delve in a little deeper with a couple of them. And then the earliest Christians who served God even under threats of death. In the epistles, we become acquainted with these groups of people, local churches, folks doing the Lord's work, sometimes better than others. And, and here, here in Philippians 2, we become acquainted with three good men. Their names are Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. All three Christians. All three had some relationship to the church at Philippi. All working together, involved in serving the saints at Philippi, living out the call of Jesus under great pressure, sacrificing much. Uh, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. What is it about these three men that makes them good? Is there something about them beyond just generically he's a good guy? Is there something about these men, each of them, we can learn from? So I just want to walk through this text and these three good men and see what we can learn. Number one, we've got Paul who describes himself here as the drink offering. Paul the drink offering. This is verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run, uh, run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial altar of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice in me. One of Paul's great concerns in this letter, and, and you see it in this text, is what the Philippians will do if he's not there. If he never comes to them again. They have obeyed in Paul's presence. When, when the apostle was there looking over their shoulder, it seems they were on their best behavior. But the question is, how will their discipleship look without Paul present? What happens to this church if they're no longer suspecting he might drop in any day? What happens to this church when Paul dies? Where does that leave them? And I think there's some validity to that concern of Paul. There are hints in this letter of internal issues within Philippi. In the beginning of chapter 2, he's telling them to do all things without rivalry or conceit. In chapter 4 and verse 2, we read about two women, Yodia and Syntyche, uh, who he tells to agree in the Lord. Inference, they were not agreeing in the Lord. And so you can see Paul pushing them to serve God with a higher motivation than, you know, we don't want to disappoint Paul. Maybe that can kind of keep you in check for a while, but that, of course, can't last forever because Paul won't last forever. And so verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, it's not me you need to be afraid of disappointing, and it's not me you need to rely on to help you work out your salvation. It's you, and it's God who's the one to be served and feared, not me. He says the day they need to be preparing for is not the day when Paul visits them again and gives them a progress report. It's the day of Christ they need to be preparing for. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And then in verse 17, 
He prepares them for the eventuality that he will die soon. And he tells them how to regard his life and his work. This is verse 17 again. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's it's quite a vivid image. One easy to read over, but linger over it, and there's something here. Many of the offerings uh, given in the temple uh, had a drink offering that went along with it, where the content of a cup would be poured out on the altar, often as sort of a, a secondary or supplementary part of the sacrifice. The animal would be the main thing sacrificed, and then a drink offering would sort of be an accompanying thing. Paul seems to imagine here God's new temple, God's people, the church, with Philippi's faith being the main offering before God. That's the thing he's interested in helping them present is, is good, good lives of faith and discipleship. And he says, my life and work amount to the little drink offering tacked onto the end. He says, if that's where I am, if, if I'm about to be totally spent, and totally spent as an afterthought, as simply a help to the main thing, which is your faith, if my life's work is a little afterthought, with you as the main attraction, verse 17, I am, a, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He adds in verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so, if Philippi suddenly receives the news, Paul's been killed in prison. Paul's been executed. He doesn't want them to be dejected or despairing. He doesn't want them to start getting, getting at each other's throats all of a sudden, now that the threat of Paul coming in is, is gone. He's been writing them all along to prepare them for this eventuality, urging them to stand together, to be equipped with the mind of Christ, to get about the business of working out their own salvation. They must do that, whether Paul lives or dies, whether Paul ever comes again or never comes again, whether he visits or whether he dies in prison. He says, be glad that I could be some small part of your offering of faith and be glad that I helped prepare you for not needing me anymore, he says. And then be about that offering for the rest of your life, working out your own salvation. So what we see in this, in this good man Paul <clears throat> is a willingness to be spent. That's the word I kept coming back to when I was thinking about Paul. Paul is willing to be spent, to be poured out. He had spent years of his life, energy, worry, brain power, working for the good of people like the Philippian church. Remember in Acts, he'd been beaten and imprisoned in this very city for the good of the gospel, and for the sake of the loss. And now he expresses his willingness to be totally spent, to die for the sake of the gospel, and all along his main concern is not the loss of his own life, his main concern is where it's going to lead them and their faith. I have to ask, could there be any more Christ-like attitude than this? A willingness to be spent, a willingness to sacrifice oneself for the good of others, and a concern as he he is being sacrificed, a concern not for his own well-being, but a concern for the faith faith of those people. Is there anything more Christ-like, more cross-like than that? I wonder where Paul learned to think this way. This is what he has just said in Philippians 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe how Jesus had this mind in himself when he left heaven, came to earth, and died on a cross. 
See, what has Paul done in this section but embody the logic of the gospel? That's just all he's doing. He has thoroughly internalized the story of Jesus and he has then modeled it in his own life. He has come to understand like Jesus the way to exaltation is humiliation. That's what makes a truly good man. And if I don't have this attitude, if if I am basically self-oriented in the way I live, if I am not nurturing the servant frame of mind, if my life is basically about me and other people are always inconveniences to me doing what I want, then I am missing one of the highest, healthiest, most Christ-like components of life. And maybe I'm not a good man. If I struggle to devote myself to others, if the only thing that ever matters to me is my own comfort, then I have missed what Paul has, certainly. And I have missed what Jesus offers. And so we have Paul, the first good man, the drink offering. Next we have Timothy. Timothy, who I'm going to call the selfless son. This is verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul says he hopes to send Timothy to Philippi soon. Um, It seems his purpose in doing this is twofold. Number one, so that Timothy can report how things have turned out in Paul's trial, in Paul's imprisonment in verse 23. Just as soon as we see how that turns out, he can go to you and report how that went. And then two, for Timothy to then return to him eventually with a report on how Philippi's doing. To send Timothy to Philippi and then come back, and then hopefully eventually he says, I'll come too. So this visit of Timothy isn't primarily for Philippi's sake, it seems, at least not as he describes it here. This visit of Timothy to Philippi is for Paul's sake. It's to cheer Paul up, verse 19, so that I may be cheered by news of you. This is just another side note about Paul. This is something we see throughout Paul's letters. His emotions are always tied together with his work. He depends on others for cheering and encouragement, which is a risky move. And Paul gets burned by brethren several times who don't love him as much as he loves them. But he is willing to take the risk to fully love, which is, again, exactly what Jesus did. Took the risk of fully loving a world that would not love him back, at least not in the measure that he loved the world. And I'm just thinking about that. I've actually received this uh, advice from, uh, from a preacher or two, which is basically... Don't invest yourself too much in any church. Don't reveal too much of your own struggles, of your own, of your own issues. You need to be sort of at arm's length because you could get hurt that way, which is, of course, true. And it's also not what Paul did, who invested himself totally in the brethren, who took the risk that any love, any loving relationship has, when you invest yourself in someone, when you share yourself with them, you make yourself vulnerable, but you also open yourself up to God's heart and to joy. Well, back to Timothy. The reason he's sending Timothy to them is because Timothy is willing to take the same loving risk that Paul is. He says, I want to send Timothy especially because he is willing to invest himself in you as much as I am. This is verse 20. 
For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. If I can put it this way, Timothy is a man after Paul's own heart. Only Timothy can be counted on to care about them like Paul does. Maybe he gets in some other guys who could speak true things, but he doesn't have anyone else who will share my heart and share concern for you as much as I do. Only Timothy can be a true proxy for Paul. Paul carries out his vocation with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, unfortunately, in verse 21, some of my co-workers' motives aren't so pure. Some other men's motives aren't so pure. Verse 21. They, he says, all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This is a somewhat mysterious verse. The identity of the they, we can't say for sure who he's thinking of. Perhaps it's the same people back from chapter 1. People in chapter 1 who were preaching from envy and rivalry and not sincerely thinking thinking to afflict Paul. Probably the same people. But back in chapter 1, Paul says, I'm at least pleased that the gospel is being preached. No matter how imperfect the vessel, how, how poor the motives, even if they don't share my heart, I'm at least glad if they just share my message. That's kind of good enough. But now he says, if I've got a choice, if I've got a choice who to send to a group of people I dearly love, it's going to be someone who doesn't just share my message. It's going to be someone who shares my heart too. It's going to be someone who practices what they preach, who lives the gospel and not just preaches the gospel. And so he says this about Timothy in verse 22. Again, unlike these other guys in verse 21, verse 22, Timothy, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. In ancient societies, fathers and sons nearly always worked together in the same trade. Um, It was basically predetermined what you were going to do for a living the second you were born. It was what your dad did. The son would be an apprentice to his father. He would learn the trade. He would watch over his shoulder and eventually he'd take over the business from him. That is what he pictures Paul as. Rather, that's what Paul pictures Timothy as in verse 22. And, and what he really stresses about Timothy is he hasn't just looked over his shoulder and learned from him in the pulpit or on the debate stage or in the study, though he certainly did all that. What he's really saying about Timothy, though, is he's looked over my shoulder and learned also from my prayer life and from my genuine care for the brethren and from selflessness and service that I've tried to develop. Timothy has also learned from me, apprentice, been an apprentice to me in those ways. He has watched and learned and proven his worth, and he says he's now ready to be sent out as a journeyman in the trade, even perhaps a master of the trade. It's a, it's a trade, he says, that requires both a head and a heart. And Timothy has proven he has both. So I have to ask, as Paul lauds Timothy and says all these wonderful things about him and his love for the brethren and his willingness to go help them, I have to ask, where does Timothy learn this selflessness, this willingness to invest himself in the spiritual good of others? How does he learn to take the risk of really loving brethren who might not love him back? Well, of course, one answer is Paul, the, uh, the, uh, one, the one doing the apprenticing. But then, of course, we ask, where did Paul learn that? And now we're right back to Philippians 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not to his own interest, but also to the interests of others, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The selfless son, Timothy, is just an imitation of the selfless son of God. That's what I want to show you. What we see in Timothy is simply this. 
an embodiment of the logic of the gospel. Oh, here's what Jesus did. He renounced his own privileges to serve his brethren. Well, that's what Paul did, and that's what Timothy did. Which brings us to number three. The third good man I want you to think about is Epaphroditus, who I'm going to call the sickly messenger. Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been a longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, the exact details of Epaphroditus' background and circumstances are not known. What I'm about to give you now is sort of a working hypothesis on the story of Epaphroditus. A good guess, I think, that makes sense of the details about him. So it seems this guy Epaphroditus is from Philippi and was the one tasked with bringing the gift of money from Philippi to Paul while he's in prison. Paul is thanking Philippi for the gift of money they sent in chapters 1 and 4 of this letter. And it seems Epaphroditus is the carrier of that gift to Paul. Um, He's probably also the bringer of this letter to Philippi. And so he goes from Philippi to Paul in prison with the money and he comes back to Philippi with Paul's letter to the Philippians. But there's a problem somewhere along the way, either coming or going, which was he got sick somewhere on the journey, deathly ill, which caused a delay in his arrival back in Philippi. It took him much longer to get to Paul and then back to Philippi than they were expecting. Now, get into the mind of of Philippi, and this, this makes sense of some of the stuff he's saying, commending Epaphroditus to them. If you were a church, if you were in a church who had taken a collection of money, a big collection of money, and then delegated someone to take that large sum of money and deliver it to someone else, again, this is before bank wires and Western Union and all that. You want to get money from here to there, you've got to send someone with a bag. If you've delegated someone to send that money to someone else and you expect them back within a month, what might you begin to think after two months and they're not back? What might you begin to think after four months? Or six months. Perhaps suspicions were raised about Epaphroditus' whereabouts and what he had done with the money. The most malicious assumption about him would be something like this. Well, he just made off with the money. We'll never see him again. Or maybe he's lollygagging, taking a vacation on our dime. Or a more charitable assumption, but nonetheless a negative assumption, would be something like this. Well, Epaphroditus has just been foolish. He went somewhere he shouldn't have gone. He's lost the money he's been taken advantage of by someone, but he's just been a bad, a bad carrier. Again, that suspicion isn't stated explicitly, but I think it's a reasonable explanation for why Paul says what he says here. He vouches for Timothy's character to Philippi because Timothy isn't from Philippi. He's got to give Timothy his letter of recommendation because I don't know Timothy that well. But he vouches for Epaphroditus' character, a man from Philippi to the Philippians. Why? Perhaps because he wants to dispel any suspicion surrounding Epaphroditus and his longer-than-expected trip, writing at length here a commendation of him. The commendation begins in verse 25 
by piling up five sort of epithets about Epaphroditus. Uh, The first three in verse 25 describe his relationship to Paul. Here's Epaphroditus as it concerns me. He is my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He says, this is someone I have locked arms with. We are on the same team. We're working for the same goal. And he's been admirable in doing that work with me. The, the last two descriptions describe his relationship to Philippi, which is he is your messenger and your minister to my need. In other words, he's been about the tasks you sent him out to do. He's been faithful in what you've entrusted him to do. And Paul stresses whatever delay there's been in his return to Philippi, it hasn't been a result of his negligence or his malice or dishonesty. Verse 26 again, For he has been longing for you all and had been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. So he says, whatever sleep you've lost over Epaphroditus, trust me, he's lost more sleep over you than you have over him. He's been deathly ill, and on top of his own illness, he's been worried sick over your state of mind about his absence. He's been more worried about your worry over him than he has been worried about his own illness. Now, Paul adds his own two cents about his own worry over the whole situation, which is interesting. Uh, In the middle of this letter, whose theme is typically described as joy, in the middle of it, we find statements like this, verse 27, but God had mercy on him, but not only on him, but also me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's deep and abiding joy in Christ doesn't preclude all sorrow. God's people get sad too. Had Epaphroditus taken the turn for the worse, Paul says, I would have an additional sorrow piled on the long list of sorrows that I have. I would have been crushed if something happened to Epaphroditus. That's Paul's aside. But beyond his own personal worry over Epaphroditus, what he really wants to facilitate here is a joyful reunion between the church and their messenger. Verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Now that Epaphroditus is better, Paul has been anxious about the tension in their relationship and the distress of Epaphroditus over Philippi and perhaps uh, anxious about the suspicions of Philippi about Epaphroditus. And so after Epaphroditus convalesces, he sends him home with this letter in hand in which the church is urged to welcome him home like the hero he is. Verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This man is worthy of your admiration. Do away with the suspicion that he's been taking a vacation on our dime. He's risked life and limb for the work of Christ in order to carry out your service to me. And he says, what, part of what Paul is saying here, Epaphroditus didn't pen scripture. Epaphroditus isn't writing these brilliant brilliant epistles that Paul is, his role is logistics to get something from point A to point point B. What Paul says is his logistical role is no lesser in the kingdom. The church who gives money for the gospel and the man who delivers that money are both necessary. The apostle who writes an epistle and the man who delivers that epistle are both necessary because an epistle that gets written and then sits on a table doesn't do anyone any good. This man has ministered to you, to me, to Christ in very practical ways and at his own peril, at the risk of his own life. Such men, he says, deserve honor. 
And so Epaphroditus, in, in a very practical way, has spent himself for the good of Paul and for the good of Philippi and ultimately for the good of the gospel. Risking his own life, Epaphroditus has done what he could for the good of others. And so I ask, where did he get that idea? Where did he get that idea that he should do whatever he can for the sake of the gospel, even at the risk of his own life? Let me read it one more time. Philippians 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What does Epaphroditus do in his own way, the way in which he uniquely can? Acts out the logic of the gospel. That's all he does. So in Philippians 2, we've got the story of three good men. And what I've tried to bring out in each of them is what it is that makes them good. Are they just all good in a generic way? And we say, well, he's a good guy, whatever that means. Is it just sort of a vibe you get off them, a feeling? He seems like a good guy. He didn't, he didn't say anything mean to me. He seems good enough. Is it that or is there something specific about them that makes them good? Something they all have in common? Maybe the case is that they've all drunk from the same well of goodness. Maybe that's why they're all good. Maybe there's a common source of their goodness. Maybe the story is something like this. Maybe they've all met the same person who was so good to them, who selflessly saved their whole lives, and from that consummate good man, each of them learned what it is to be good. They saw goodness done, they received the goodness of this, good, this greatest of men, and they learned what it is to be good toward others in their own lives. I've basically tried to argue that's exactly what happened here. Each of these good men's lives, Paul's sacrificial service, Timothy's selflessness and emotional investment, Epaphroditus' travels, each of these men's good lives comes from the fact that they each came to know Jesus and his gospel, which is a story of sacrifice and selflessness and love. And it looks different in each of their lives, but it each kind of looks the same too. Having received that message, having thoroughly internalized what the gospel is, they can now emanate that good that they've received, emanate that out into the rest of the world. To the extent that each of us, I think this is saying, to the extent that each of us has internalized this message, the message of Philippians, to the extent we've internalized it, will be good too. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so the question is, are you good? Not are you good in a generic way, <clears throat> kind of nice to people. I mean good in the most Christian way possible, for the good of others, at your own hurt and own expense. Are you willing to spend? Are you willing to be spent? Are you willing to do the Christ thing? Maybe there's someone here that realizes you've been living for yourself, first of all, and others are an inconvenience, others are a nuisance. And you want to come and live the Jesus way. It's the only way. It's a risky way to live, but it's one that will bring joy eternally and now. Maybe there's someone that needs to respond. Do so now as we stand and sing. <clears throat> Sinners Jesus will receive soundless word of grace to all who the heavenly path will lead. All who linger, all who fall, sing it all.
receive a sinful man, even me with all my sin. Purge from him, free spot and stain, and with him I enter in. Sing it all and o'er again. Christ, receive a sinful man.